0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in B.C. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start now with relations, the battle now between B.C. ferries and the union that represents its workers. The union here seeking over $2 million in damages from the company now in a complaint at the BC Labor Board. Union management relations at the Ferry Corporation right now are very poor. Let's discuss it with my guest, Eric McNeely, president of the Ferry and Marine Workers Union. Very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Eric, thanks for coming on today.
0: Morning. Thanks for having me.
1: Okay, Eric. I appreciate it, Eric. Let's talk about what's going on here. Now, let's talk about this complaint against BC Ferries at the Labor Board, seeking two million dollars in damages here from the company. What's going on here? What is the what is the point of this?
0: Yeah. So the uh, the challenge we've had is that the employer has been bargaining directly with our members, uh, creating uh, multi tier. Uh, compensation and, and recognition, and that has uh, directly resulted in uh, damage to the relationship between the union and the members, and uh, and that's the result. Uh, the result of that communication is why uh, we sought an unfair labor practice and uh, bargaining in bad faith uh, violations. Uh, okay, how can of, they of the do that?
1: Department. I mean, you're the you're the official bargaining agent for the workers, right? So how can the company bargain with people and, and go around do an end run around you guys? hows that possible
0: well it's possible but it's uh in our belief uh, it's against the the labor code so uh you know some employers and uh, typically most employers will deal and negotiate with a sole bargaining agent the union uh, uh what we've seen is the employer has gone directly to members and provided them offers outside or has provided uh you know general membership uh partial information around the bargaining process as we were in uh, wage negotiations and that uh, also traded Uh, challenges and and disrupted sort of faith uh, with the union uh, because it misrepresented uh, the actions uh, being undertaken. Okay.
1: What's going on with these housing stipends? A lot of people have been reading about this, that the company had been offering housing stipends to workers. That was during the COVID-19 pandemic. But what some of these, the companies continue to offer these housing stipends to some employees, but not all of them. Is that what's going on?
0: Yeah, there's a few things there. So, during COVID, there was some, uh, uh, you know, changes made to ensure that people had safe places to stay, especially in uh, some remote locations where there was crew changes occurring on either live aboard or or long-day vessels, and that mm-hmm. made a lot of sense. Uh, what we became aware of a little less than two years ago was that uh, the employer had actually expanded the program and, and started uh, directly negotiating with either new hires or, or new arrivals to, to certain locations. And what we're aware of today is that uh, on Malcolm Island, Texade Iron, uh, Quadra, and Thetis Island, the employer had started providing housing to as you said, some employees, but not others, and in some locations, have been providing uh, additional monetary compensation in, for some employees wow. in some locations.
1: And and this is like I've read that this housing stipend can be up to five hundred dollars a month. Is that right?
0: Uh, our understanding is actually higher.
1: Higher than that? Yes. Wow!
0: And that uh, as you can imagine, if you're working in one location and you find out that your coworker is getting Uh, accommodations and another co-worker is getting monetary impact and uh, you're getting nothing uh, that creates a challenge and and i'm not going to downplay the fact that bc ferries has had some challenges recruiting and retaining people and certainly in remote locations uh there are challenges uh, with the amount of mariners available in those locations Uh, but i would say sort of at the the end of the day what it looks like to me is bc ferries uh, look to apply a band-aid to what is a critical bleed and the reason it's a critical bleed is because my members especially in the uh the high need loca- locations and high need uh certificates you know they're 18 to 60 percent behind their peers in compensation within Canada and that's the real root of the problem the real root is that uh, they aren't able to afford to live in the community or they're not able to have their family where they normally live and work in the community and So we'd always be willing to have those discussions with the employer. But uh, that wasn't what occurred, and they went directly to membership.
1: Speaking of Eric McNeely, Eric is the president of the Ferry Workers Union at at BC Ferries. Eric, what would you say to people who are listening to this, and they'd say, wait wait a second here now, this company is paying more than 500 bucks a month to some of their workers as as a housing stipend to help pay for their housing? Man, like, what is the justification for that? I I don't know many people whose bosses are helping pay for their housing.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's uncommon in most places, but it is uh, not uncommon within the rain industry. You'll have people live aboard, or people who uh live away like a camp job, and you can draw some parallels there. Uh, but I think the real uh, fundamental issue is that there wasn't negotiations with the employer or with between the employer and the union, and that uh, that meant that the union had to chase around and find it, and that in- impacts morale of members, especially when there's haves and have-nots. And wow. Morale. So, what, do you, what do you saying,
1: are you saying? Are you saying that like everyone should get it? Well,
0: we think there's solutions that are available uh, to the employer. It's just really hard to work together when we aren't part of the conversation. And uh, you know, I'm the same person I am uh, in front of a camera, in front of a microphone, as I am behind a closed door. And it turns out that uh, that may be a bit of a more of a challenge for us when the employer uh, is acting uh, one way and behaving another way without our
1: that- knowledge. Eric, tell me about this. Uh, I'm looking at the complaint at the Labour Board, and it says uh, a BC Ferries executive dropped an F-bomb here, and well, he told, told your people to shut the F up or something. What happened there?
0: Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting. You hear in the news that BC Ferries is honouring you know respectful communication towards and about the union and the media and public. Uh, but as as noted in the complaint, you know, hurling invective behind closed doors, and you know, this is a, a large amount of new management at BC Ferries. I think their HR department has had uh, roughly a 70% turnover in the last two years. Those, there's challenges there and there's opportunities. And they, the challenge is uh, you got new people who don't understand the system, uh, don't know anyone, so they don't have relationships. And then the opportunity is you have fresh eyes. Uh, we were really optimistic, uh, you know, two Julys ago when uh, BC Ferries said that we could have uh, switched to a people-centric approach. And uh, that really seemed like something, uh, you know, we as a union get behind, would get behind, members get behind. But it, we also hear, you know, now the employer saying, well, we need a third party to help recognize how important the workforce is after a pandemic, after illegal layoffs, after a 0% raise. I mean, does a people-centric people employer really need a third party to just show
1: people? So, so this more, guy, more? so just, just to get back to the F-bomb for a minute. So th- yeah. this, guy, this guy told you to shut the F up in a, in a meeting. Is that right? How did how did you that react? Correct, to, yeah. How did you react to that? What did you think of that?
0: Uh, well, you know what, uh, BC Ferry has respect respectful workplace policy. I, I don't think that was in compliance with it. And uh, myself and the other union representative who were on the video call, uh, we left because there's no need to stay in a meeting where uh, abusive language is being used. So uh, we what, left what? the meeting. Uh, we have requested additional meetings since then, uh, but we haven't actually heard back from the employer for a few days.
1: Eric, what's happening with the raise? I know you guys were seeking like a raise and a reopener negotiation, right? What What was the size of the raise you were seeking?
0: Yeah, so uh, that process is still ongoing, and we are at, uh, at a uh, binding arbitration uh, uh, panel. Okay, uh, We're looking for additional dates. The union continues to provide dates uh, for that and make it so that the employer can uh, provide you know, the recognition and respect uh, that the uh, the employees deserve. Uh, we believe that VC Ferries has fallen well behind uh, peers in the marine industry uh, here on the west coast of Canada, as well as across Canada around the world, uh, meaning that uh, there needs to be significant increases. And I think I mentioned before, you know, in some of our positions, you know, our captains, chief engineers, you know, some of them are 18 to 60% behind their peers in the industry. And that's really creating a recruitment so you've, you've
1: So you've asked for a 20% raise, correct?
0: What we've done is we've looked at uh, each position and made uh, increases, increased uh, recommendations to BC Ferries based on what peers look like. So in some cases, the uh, the ask is substantial, and in some cases, the ask uh, reflects market value.
1: Okay, Eric, last question for you. How would you describe like relations between your union and management at BC Ferries right now? It obviously does not sound very good. How would you describe it?
0: I would describe it as challenging, and you know I think there's an opportunity for the public and government to tell BC Ferries that uh, poor wages and understaffing lead to longer wait times, and that the ferry system needs to work for British Columbians. It interconnects transportation and economies along our coast, and uh, BC Ferries needs to uh, be responsible for what they are and make the system and the vessels
1: work. What what's what's the starting what's the starting salary for a new worker at BC Ferries? Let's say you get a job working in the cafeteria there. What do you, how much do you make to start?
0: Yeah, so it depends on the position, but it's, uh, the aver- the lowest wage of BC ferries is uh, just under twenty three dollars, and uh, the average wage is uh, just under thirty three dollars, depending on uh, certification.
1: Eric, thank you for coming on today. Appreciate it, Mike. Let's talk about this registration fee that the City of Mission is introducing for secondary suites in your home. So the way this would work, if you have a secondary suite, let's say like a basement apartment in a house, you'd be required to register with the city on that. There's a there's a fee there up to $200 a year. Now, we talked about this yesterday on the show. Some people call this a, a, a cash grab. What, what is this? This is a cash grab? What's going on? In Mission, have a listen to yesterday's show here. I spoke to real estate analyst Paul Sullivan. He wasn't very impressed with this fee. Have a listen.
2: Well, it's just an unnecessary t- cash grabbing. Why do, why do we need to do this? I mean, these people are opening up their homes to allow for affordable rental accommodation for people in society. You know, why don't we give them a, a tax break? Why don't we give them a 100 bucks for, for allowing people to live in their home?
1: Okay, well, the residents in Mission are not the only people who have, uh, have a facing a fee like this for a secondary suite. Let's talk to the mayor about it now. Paul Horn, he's the mayor of Mission. Very pleased to welcome him. Mayor Horn, thank you for coming on today. Thank you very much, Mike. Okay, so let's talk about this fee here. How is, why are you guys doing this and how is it going to work?
3: Well, for more than 20 years, we really have had an incredibly growing number of unauthorized suites here. And there's been no way for people to get them legally recognized by the city other than going through the extraordinarily costly approach of getting permits, inspections and new construction. So the effort here is really to give people an opportunity to bring them into compliance with a one page form. And the fee was at one hundred dollars for the first uh, six and a half weeks or so or actually about eight and a half weeks. And uh, council, as of last night, actually said if people want us to go back and re-examine the math on that, we're happy to do that. So, on January 8th, we may, in fact, even uh, take that fee down all the way to nothing, or uh, or look at a further reduction of some kind.
1: Oh, okay. But right now, as it stands, as I understand it, if you don't register, if you register after April 1st, the, the fee would increase to $200. Is that right? A year. Essentially, what's happened is we've created an
3: amnesty program for now until the beginning of April for folks who haven't had an authorized suite to be able to do it in this window for up to $200. The the fee gradually increases up to that point. It's lower at the beginning just to help folks have an affordable option and to be an incentive. And so it's really um, intended to give them a pathway they've never had here other than waiting until somebody complains about their suite and then having to go through the costly process of dealing with permits, inspections, fines, and so forth. And usually when that happens, the end result is the tenant ends up being displaced. So it's really disruptive to the homeowner and the tenant when that happens. Right.
1: right. And is this, uh, is this a one-time fee or is it an annual fee? The intention was for it to be an annual fee. And what council has asked oh. is that the cost
3: of the fee be correlated to the cost of actually operating uh, the secondary suites oversight what's happening right now is that homeowners like myself who don't have suites are paying through our taxes for issues around enforcement of these unauthorized suites and as folks have accurately complained about the enforcement actually usually ends up creating a hardship for both homeowners and tenants so we're trying to find a way where the program is administered by by the fees that are actually associated with homeowners who have suites, and this gives them an opportunity to advertise their suite without any concern about somebody complaining about them, put it into their real estate listing, and now it's officially Mm -hmm. recognized and adds value to their home as well.
1: Okay, speaking to Paul Horn, the mayor of Mission, uh, about the secondary suite fee that the city is introducing, and the city of Mission is not the only municipality that has fees like this, but, you know, I know that you're getting an earful from people who are are not happy about it. Let me play one clip here for you, uh, Paul, and get your thoughts. So this is Mark Johnson, he's a Mission homeowner, spoke to Global News about this, doesn't like this fee, and here's what he had to say, then I'll get your thoughts. I'm going to decommission the suite entirely. The real unfortunate part of that is that's taking a rental suite off the market entirely. So when I sell my home or if my kids
0: move out, we won't have the opportunity to rent that out.
1: Okay, what do you say to him? Like he's saying, uh, you know, to heck with this. I don't want to pay this. I'm just going to shut the suite down. I'm going to decommission this suite in my home. Doesn't that yeah, make it, it even worse? I mean, we're in a housing crisis here, right?
3: Exactly. And I think the point is that folks have misunderstood the intention of the programs to actually help them protect their suites and and, and to make it easy for folks like this gentleman. Um, and so certainly, Council, because of the feedback we've received, is going to take a look and see if we can reduce the fee further. But even at the current fee regime, I think for the average person, it's a far more profitable thing to pay a, a small amount, as, as they do in Abbotsford and Surrey and elsewhere, to have yeah. your fee be preserved because, or sorry, have your suite be preserved because it adds value even if you don't occupy it. If you don't occupy it or if you use it for family, then you can get an exemption. So, um, mm. and I think we'll, we'll be looking at taking away any fees associated with exemptions. The other thing that council has said, a previous council had uh, brought in a policy of double billing. So if you had a suite of any kind, you pay double the amount of others for your utilities. But council, wow. this council has said we want to phase that out because we do very much want to see people occupying their homes, whether it's with relatives or whether it's with tenants. We completely understand that suites make affordable housing for the homeowner and for the renter. Yeah. So we, We're not trying to get rid of them. We're trying to make it easier for people to have them and feel safe knowing that they can have them.
1: Right. Speaking of Paul Horn, Paul is the mayor of Mission, BC, and the new s- registration fee there for a secondary suite in a, in a home. You know, you mentioned that there are a lot of illegal suites in in Mission, and you're trying to get a handle on it. I, I think one of the reasons, like I've heard from people who say that one of the reasons they might have a suite in their home and they would not, they would not want the local city hall to know about it is because once that happens, then you get inspectors coming around and saying, well, you've got you've got improper wiring here, and it's going to cost you a fortune to bring this up to code, and this is why they keep it secret. So let me, let me get your thoughts on that. I'll play another clip here for you from yesterday's show. This is real estate analyst Paul Sullivan on yesterday's show. Let's listen, then I'll get your thoughts.
2: It's not going to stop there. As soon as you register your suite, you're going to have the building inspector arrive, and you're going to be doing all those upgrades that you couldn't afford to do uh, when you put that suite in. And young people buying homes need suites. They need that revenue to pay mortgages. And, and this is going to be a big blowback against them.
1: Mayor, Mayor Horn, what do you say to him
3: on that? Well, Mr. Sullivan needs to do his homework because he's got it completely, completely backwards. The whole purpose of this is that people sign a one-page form and they right. check a box that says they are compliant with the BC Building Code, they're compliant with their bylaws, they're registered, and they're done. And they don't get an inspector. That's the whole value of it. So it's the people who have a complaint filed by an angry neighbor. We have tenants who call because they have a living issue within their suite. But when an inspector goes out, they don't just get to remedy the issue when they find an illegal or unauthorized suite. The suite usually ends up getting closed down, at least temporarily, while it's being brought up to code. So this is meant to do the exact opposite. No inspector will show up. No bylaw officer will show up. You fill in the form online, and you're done.
1: Okay, that's very interesting. What about the, the fee itself? Like, how is this a justifiable fee? Like, we heard some people say, oh, this is a cash grab by, by City mm-hmm. Hall here. How is it not a cash grab? Like, if it is a $200 a year fee going forward potentially here, how is that not just a revenue stream to the city? I mean, it can't, why would it cost 200 bucks a year just to register a suite?
3: As of last night's council meeting, I think council has said, let's go back and take a look even further at justifying the math because the whole reason we're doing this, other than protecting suites, is to get a handle on how many we have. We've got about 14,000 dwellings in the city and we don't know, we could have estimates of six to 8,000 who have suites in them. So we cannot fix a specific number, but once we have that number, I think the aim here will be able to to basically say the pro forma on the cost of taking those registrations, sending out the letters, having people available to respond to tenant complaints if they have any kind of life safety issues or that sort of thing. That's the cost we want that fee to cover, and nothing more, nothing less. So okay. it's being paid by fee people, or suite owners, not by taxpayers in general.
1: What do you say to the argument that we're in a housing crisis here right now, and the biggest problem is is government? We got we got too much government, red tape, bureaucracy, fees, licenses, permitting delays. Th- this is the problem. And I had callers on the show yesterday saying, well, this is a prime example. You got a, city, you got a city saying, oh, we want $200 a year from you to register a secondary suite. This is an example of how government's a problem. The government needs to just get out of the way so we can get more housing built. Like, what do you say to that argument? Do you think government is a problem in the ho- this housing crunch we got? It would certainly be easier if we didn't have to go through the process of
3: dealing with the building code. But we have really good reasons why we have to do that, of course. We do get calls at the city when people live in substandard or unsafe conditions. And that's what's really what we're dealing with here. We have two issues. Number one, we don't know how many of these we have. So yeah. that affects our ability to do planning for neighborhoods and schools and so forth. But the other issue that we have is that we have had until, until recently no way of saying we're going to assign the liability for building code issues to the homeowner that's what this form does this form basically says that the city doesn't have to be liable for that homeowner if they aren't compliant the individual okay. homeowner is and so if the if the province was to come along change the rules we'd certainly be interested but right now we had to find a mechanism and for the first time in 20 years we think we found a way to do that efficiently and in a way that was meant to have a low impact on these unauthorized home uh, suite owners Uh, It hasn't landed that way yet. I think people are starting to understand more once they get answers to their questions. But uh, it's meant to try and find an easy way through that red tape, at least as easy as we can for now.
1: Thank you for coming on to talk about this today. I appreciate it. No problem. Thank you for having us on. All right, let's talk about decriminalization of drug possession in British Columbia. So 2.5 grams, that is the legal possession limit in BC for heroin, cocaine, crack cocaine, crystal meth, and even fentanyl. Now, we've had this for nearly one year in BC, and the idea is reduce the stigma of drug use so more people will come forward and get help. How is it working out so far? It does not look very good. Overdose deaths have gone up. We are now at an all-time high for drug deaths in B.C. Now, the supporters of decriminalization, though, say decrim is actually working. They say the overdose, the overdose death rate would actually be higher without decriminalization They want to expand it. Now, check out what's going on in Oregon, to the south of us here. Now, they they did drug decriminalization before we did. The governor down there now, though, wants to walk back part of the decriminalization program there in the state of Oregon. This is a Democratic governor, Tina Kotek, who is now talking about banning public drug use in Oregon because they've had so many problems and also increasing police resources to go after drug dealers. So walking po- walking back part of the decriminalization effort there, should we do the same thing here? I got Tom Wolf standing by to discuss this is a red hot discussion there in the state of Oregon. Have a listen to, this is a a police department, Sergeant Aaron Schmatz here. He's with the Portland Police Department. Here he is speaking at a public policy forum here recently about public drug use. He says it should be banned. Have a listen. If
2: someone is using drugs in public, we just don't have an abatement tool available to us today. When someone has been to jail and that's been a very bad place for them, if the police can say, listen, you need help, and I'm just telling you right now, you need to go somewhere and I don't want to be the vector for that. Here's this other place you can go. And if we can build up those trusting systems, it would reduce force. It would reduce negative interactions with law enforcement. It would provide
1: people some hope. Okay. So police there in Oregon saying, look, we need to be more involved here now in this drug crisis we have in Oregon. All right. There's some really, really interesting parallels going on there to what we have happening here. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Tom Wolf. Tom is a drug treatment and recovery advocate. He is with the Foundation for Drug Policy Solutions in San Francisco. I'm very pleased to welcome him back, Tom. Thank you for coming on today.
2: Hi, Mike. It's great to be back. Happy holidays to you.
1: Thank you, Tom. Same to you. So when we talk about decriminalization there in Oregon, what's the situation where you are in San Francisco? Do they got decriminalization of drugs there, too?
2: Well, not technically, no, but we've kind of had a de facto decriminalization here for quite some time. And, uh, you know, in San Francisco, our overdose deaths were set to eclipse 800 overdose deaths by the end of this year, which is an all-time record. And the police have pulled more than 70 kilos of fentanyl off the street in just one neighborhood in San Francisco. So it's, it's very much out of control here. And our approach has been very hands off until very recently when our new district attorney started cracking down on open air drug use. And, uh, and you, know, we're, you know, it takes time. We didn't get into this problem overnight. We're not going to get out of it overnight. But I'm glad to see us taking some action and steps in the right direction here in San Francisco.
1: What do you think's going on? What do you think about what's going on next door to you there in Oregon? Because this was a, one of the first jurisdictions to go with a decriminalization model in the United States. <laughs> now you've got a, a Democratic governor who's been very supportive of decrim in the past now saying, well, hang on a second here. We might have to roll some of this back. We, maybe we have to ban public drug use. Maybe we have to have more police enforcement. What do you think of that?
2: Well, you just have to look at the data. So since uh, 2020, since the end of 2020 in Oregon, there's been a 75 percent growth rate in overdose deaths in that state. That's four times faster than the rest of the United States. And per capita, Oregon is now, now has the fifth largest amount of overdose deaths in the entire country. So this is all since Measure 110 went into place. And so the argument that more decriminalization actually reduces overdose deaths, there's actually no evidence to support that because we don't know. So that's really just conjecture and hope on the part of the folks that are supporting decriminalization who underneath that really are supporting, want to support full legalization and safe supply of, of these drugs to folks out there. And that's just the opposite of recovery. That's not what the approach that we're supposed to be taking. People would be much better off if they actually went to treatment and left these drugs behind and found a way to live their life without having to self-medicate to the point of
1: death. Okay. Do you therefore think that these drugs should be illegal again? Like they should not be decriminalized? It should be illegal to possess these drugs?
2: Well, you have to think about how the drugs have changed. So fentanyl really changed the game. Uh, so two and a half grams of fentanyl is about 30 pills, 25 to 30 pills. Uh, that's enough for a drug dealer to actually go out there and sell drugs. Uh, yeah. And that, if he gets caught with that amount, Nothing's going to happen to him. He gets a yeah. he gets a ticket with a phone number to call for treatment. Well, he's not the one that needs treatment. It's his customers that need treatment. So they have mistakenly, basically, de facto decriminalized drug dealing because fentanyl. You can you know it's such a small quantity. You only need two milligrams to overdose. Uh, you can carry around a certain amount of pills without anything happening to you, and uh, and people are just dying left and right. And those are really undeniable facts. If you look at it it that way, it's really undeniable.
1: Okay, we have had police forces here in British Columbia support the decriminalization model in principle, but I've talked to some police officers who now wonder if this was the right thing to do because they say right now if they see someone using drugs, um, they obviously cannot arrest them, cannot ticket them if they're in possession of less than 2.5 grams of, of drugs, and they feel that in some ways... It's a lost opportunity to direct people into care, recovery, detox. Mm -hmm. And this is what police officers in Oregon are are arguing now, too. Let me play another clip here for you, Tom. Get your thoughts. This is Sheriff Curtis Landers. He's with the Lincoln County Police Department in the state of Oregon. Here he is making the case he wants drugs recriminalized in Oregon. Let's listen. Restoring this to a crime is not about putting people in jail or adding a crime to the record, which would hinder their success in in the future. It's about getting people to help to break free from a cycle of addiction. Do you think there's anything to that argument that if you give police the authority to intervene here in, let's say, public drug use, drug possession, that people, it'd be more effective to directing people into recovery?
2: Yes, I absolutely think that. And it's because I'm living proof of that model working. So I was eventually arrested. I was arrested a total of six times in 2018. And after the sixth time, I had to spend about 90 days in jail where I got clean and sober. And then from there, I was given an opportunity to go to drug treatment. And I've been clean and sober ever since over five years now. So that model doesn't work for everyone, but it works for some. And there's a lot of layers to that. So it's like, look, we don't want to use jail as in the infrastructure anymore. OK, I'm OK with that. But you need to replace that infrastructure with something else. And we failed to do that. And so the whole promise of decriminalization was that, oh, well, the, with the money we save, uh, we're going to be able to build all these treatment centers. Well, that takes five wow. years, 10 years to materialize. What do people do in the meantime? They are literally dying because, the, again, the drugs have changed. Fentanyl has really changed everything. Uh, so it's so lethal now that people aren't even going to be a re- alive to realize the opportunity of being able to pursue recovery because there's not enough treatment out there. So – Uh, At this point, we need every tool at our disposal. We need literally the kitchen sink. So if you want to decriminalize and not replace that with actual treatment, which, you know, Measure 110 in Oregon says, well, we're going to build all these treatment centers. I think they've opened one, one treatment center since 2020. Um, And there's like over $30 million just sitting there unused, waiting for someone to claim it to build treatment centers. Um, all, All the while, overdose deaths have exploded in the state of Oregon, it's undeniable data that shows yeah. that this plan was short sighted, uh, not well thought out, and it needs to be revisited and amended at the very least, if not repealed altogether. Yeah.
1: Speaking to Tom Wolf, Foundation for Drug Policy Solutions, talking about decriminalization of drug possession. We, it's the law of the land here in BC now. We're nearly one year into decrim. It's really interesting to look at what's going on in Oregon where they did decriminalization before we did, and now they're talking about walking back uh, parts of it. Now, our premier here, David Eby, was asked about this drug decriminalization look what's happening in oregon should we walk par- walk back part of it here too here's what he had to say tom this is the equivalent of your state governor here in bc let's listen i'll get your thoughts
0: the uh... sale of
1: illicit drugs in british columbia has always remained criminalized we did not uh... follow uh... uh... Oregon's, uh approach in that regard uh... and similarly uh... we introduced a new law uh, that uh, restricts the uh, public consumption of illicit drugs. Okay, so I guess he's arguing there that they already did kind of walk back a little bit of it, and they've brought in some restrictions on where people are allowed to use these drugs in public, uh, Tom. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, the, the other part of this is safe supply. We've got a big safe supply system here. People want to see that expanded. If people are going to use drugs anyway, give them a laboratory-tested a uh, dose of Dilaudid uh, instead, like a government-approved opioid. I, I, and I know you're a big critic of that idea too, right? So you don't like decriminalization, but I, I don't think you support safe supply either, correct?
2: Well, I got addicted to a safe supply. I got addicted to a prescription of opioids, and that led mm-hmm. me into heroin and eventually fentanyl. So the answer to helping someone struggling addi- with addiction isn't to give them replacement drugs. It's not to give them more drugs. It's to provide them an opportunity to go to treatment and leave those drugs behind. I cannot stress the need for recovery enough for, for as a solution to this crisis. And that's something that we've just continued to fail to, to underfund. We, we underfund it. We don't focus on it enough. We don't talk about it enough. You see some of these more kind of radical folks out there talking about how recovery is too hard and that you shouldn't even bother and we should just support drug users in perpetuity. All of those things are very kind of nihilistic views that we have for folks where we're just giving up on them and we don't believe well, that they can actually change. And I well, disagree isn't with it,
1: that. Isn't it true, though, that a lot of people who do go into treatment, uh, it doesn't work. And, you know, I've talked to people who've family member people have told me that they've had family members who have gone into treatment over and over again and they just start using again like it never works. And I mean, obviously it works for a lot of people. It worked for you. But are, mm-hmm. are there some cases where people it would just never work?
2: Yeah, there's always I mean, there's always, nothing is exact. And that's this is the thing about drug policy. Drug policy is not an exact science at all uh, in in how we arrive at conclusions. A lot of it is driven by emotion and how what people feel and what they see. Oh, this person went to treatment six times, so we should just give them maintenance drugs for the rest of their life. Well, you know, if you fail, you're, if you're trying to get your driver's license and you fail your driving test, do you just never go back. And try to Hmm. get your driver's license or do you go back again and try again and you try again and you try again until you make it happen? So, you know, you're never going to get everyone. It's not a 100% catch all. But we have to make those options available for people to offer them an out. And if you never offer them an out, the the out that they're giving them is, is here take this drug instead. It's not quite as strong as the drug that you're on. And we're already seeing diversion of those drugs. We're already seeing those dilaudides, those dillies showing up on the streets, showing up in schools in Vancouver. So we already know that's been well documented that those drugs are ending up on the street because people are getting that safe supply. And then they're taking it out there and selling it to buy money to get fentanyl because fentanyl is stronger. And the last thing I would add to that is that Let's say we massively expanded safe supply and we eventually legalized fentanyl. Do you think that the cartels are going to just take their ball and go home and pivot to selling avocados? Or you uh-huh. think, or do you think they're going to come up with another derivative of fentanyl that's even stronger, like trank? Yeah. Or right now yes. in San Francisco, you're starting to see fentanyl being mixed with ketamine and sold on the street to enhance its effects. It yeah. doesn't stop. So really the answer here is to try to, Expand treatment as much as we can, give people vehicles to enter into treatment, and sometimes that has to be a nudge from law enforcement, Mm. and also work, do what we can to restrict as much of the supply as possible to make it harder to get high and easier for people to get treatment.
1: Just got a couple of minutes left here with my guest Tom Wolf. Tom is an advocate for Drug Addiction Treatment and Recovery Foundation for Drug Policy Solutions. He is based in San Francisco, talking about decriminalization of drugs here in BC, the safe supply issue in our province. Yeah, Tom, you mentioned that you were a drug user yourself. You got into treatment. You're able to. You're able to get off drugs. How long? How many tries did that take for you to actually kick drugs your drug habit?
2: It took me one try. Uh, I had to do Mm. three months in county jail and then a six month inpatient residential treatment program. And uh, I never looked back. And that doesn't I know that doesn't work for everyone, but you got to keep the hope alive. That hope of recovery for people is out there. And so you have to make it as widely available as possible. And again, uh, I always say it this way, especially for people that are using drugs on the street. There's a subset of people on the street that require intervention. I'm one of those people. I survived. i alive today because I was rescued and offered that intervention. And most of my friends in the recovery community got clean that way as well, because at some point along the line, when you're in active recovery, you have to own the things that you did in your recovery. And I say this all the time, that accountability is a cornerstone of recovery. And we, as we systematically remove that in our society with drug users, you kind of see this proliferation of drug use and now overdose deaths with that and entries into treatment are dropping in San Francisco. They're down 40% mm. right now. Yeah. People just aren't seeking recovery because nobody's offering them any incentive. There's no reason. Why would you? Yeah. Fentanyl's $5 on the street. It's a $1.50 a pill in Portland right now for fentanyl on the street. And the police can't do anything. So why would you get clean at that point? That's really the
1: question. Tom, it's an inspiring story. Every time I talk to you, thank you for coming on with your thoughts on this today. I appreciate it.
2: Well, thank you, Mike. It's always a pleasure to to talk to you. And again, happy holidays to you and all your crew out there. Thank you.
1: Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.